Welcome to episode 305 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right, we're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's filets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. ButcherBox.com slash IFPodcast with code IFPodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 305 of the Intermission Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, Melanie, how are you? I am good. I did something that I haven't done in a long time that we've talked about a lot on this show that listeners might be familiar with. I'm back on the the CGM train. Oh, you are. Yeah, I haven't worn one. It's been a while. I go through periods like I put one on and I wear it for a while and then I take a breather. But it's always really exciting to, you know, see where where you are with everything with that. I'm curious because you said you wore one for like months and months, right? I did for about 18 months and then I took a break. I, I felt like, especially with me doing a lot of travel, 
to me, it's just kind of a one extra step to have to take. I do have a NutriSense CGM or a Freestyle Libre connected with NutriSense upstairs that I should put on at some point, but I've got two trips in February and two in April, like back to back. So I will definitely avoid having it on at that time. Yeah, it is. Because I don't want to dissuade people if they're traveling that they can't wear it, but it is something where, you know, moving around and hustling and sleeping and then going out it's a thing. So so for listeners who are not familiar, it's a continuous glucose monitor and you put it onto your arm and it constantly measures your, actually your interstitial fluid to measure your blood sugar levels 24-7. But my question for you was in those 18 months, did you like see any significant changes? Did you make like dietary or lifestyle or fasting changes to address your blood sugar levels? Or like, what was your experience like? I think it really validated the way that I eat. And certainly, you know, for me, it was insightful. There were certain types of carbohydrates like plantains. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. It doesn't matter how I consume them. They really spike my blood sugar quite significantly. The other thing that I I have really started paying attention to is just the stress of travel I live in a city now where there are very few direct flights. So there's always a changeover either in Denver or Chicago or Atlanta. And if anyone's traveled in those big airports, I think I chronicled that I sprinted in the Chicago airport to make my LA connection that was about a mile and a quarter. And I kept saying, I don't know how people who are not healthy are able to do that. I would have missed my flight. So to me, knowing the net impact of that stress, because with cortisol going up, blood sugar goes up in response to that. So to me, it's like now I know what I need to be doing. It just validated good behavior. I wasn't, you know, I I haven't changed my diet all that much. I'm still very protein centric, definitely cycle my carbohydrates. I do notice the net impact on my blood sugar and certainly my aura ring scores if I deviate from what I normally do. I'll give everyone an example. Although I'm not wearing a CGM right now, over the weekend, I just felt like having, you know, like a clean brownie. So I made brownies. And typically, if I'm going to do that, I'll, I I don't do it at eight or nine o'clock at night. And so what's interesting to me is how badly I felt after eating said brownies, even though I'd had a good dinner, like a good substantial dinner. And I was telling my husband, I just think I'm getting less, my body is less comfortable with me consuming things that are really sugary, even if that's very sporadic. But for me, that just reinforces good habits. So I'm like, next time I definitely won't do that. I felt like the whole next day, like yesterday, I really didn't feel good. And I think it was just the amount of sugar I consume, which is not my normal. But yeah, I have one more CGM to use and I'm kind of holding off. I have a trip upcoming to London and then one to Denver and I'll probably do it in March, which is in between all my trips. Very cool. For listeners, if they would like to get their own CGM, they can go to nutrisense.io slash IF podcast and use the coupon code IF podcast and that will get them a discount. But speaking to your story, I remember I was wearing a CGM once and I had something sugary. It scared me what I saw my CGM. <laughs> like ever, It's like haunted me with PTSD. Ever since that time, I've been like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is what that is doing. And, and that's what I think the CGM can be so helpful is because it literally is a mirror showing you what's actually happening. But I do want to clarify, I think people might be surprised. I eat a, ridi- I mean, it's not ridiculously high carb. It is by, I think, low carb keto world, paleo world standards. I eat a ton of fruit carbs, like pounds and pounds of fruit. And 
it's really exciting because I watch my CGM and I do really well with that. Like my blood sugar does not spike that high and it goes down pretty soon thereafter, which is, I don't know. It's interesting though, because I can consume that really high amount of carbs from fruit and be fine. But comparing it to when I had a more processed form, I don't know how it actually compared in grams of carbs, but the spike was so different. So it's really, really interesting to see. I'm also curious your thoughts on something. I'm interviewing Benazadi next week, which I know he's a mutual friend of ours. That's actually something really funny. I knew of him and I knew him through you and I knew you were friends with him. And then my my publicist independently like booked him for me. Like he connected us. We already like knew who each other was. It was just really funny. And I was like, oh, you're like, you're Cynthia's friend. But what's interesting, a big question I want to ask him is, and this is something that I've seen a lot of people talk about in the fasting community. So he talks about how he considers coffee or tea breaking a fast if it raises your blood sugar. So he wants you to test your blood sugar. And if the coffee or tea raises your blood sugar, he considers that breaking the fast. My question about that, and this is what I want to ask him, and I'm curious your thoughts. I don't see why raising your blood sugar from coffee or tea compared to, say, cortisol, like your experience or exercise, like why would we qualify one as breaking the fast and not the other? I mean, I understand that it's coffee and tea, but presumably the mechanism would be similar. Do you think you break your fast if your blood sugar goes high? I think it depends on so many different variables. I'm I'm a little more gray in this area. I think that as an example, if someone is not sleeping well and they just keep throwing more gasoline on the fire, they've got really intense exercise, they're fasting, they're drinking a lot of coffee because their adrenals are completely tanked or they're really stressed. In that situation, I think that the resultant, you know, rise in cortisol and rise in blood sugar and compensatory, you know, secretion of insulin is a mechanism related to stress. And so I think this is when I encourage people if they feel poorly, like as an example, if you're fasting and you drink a cup of coffee or you drink, you know, bitter tea and you don't feel good, like you really should with a degree of caffeine that's in both of those, it should give you a little bit of an energy boost but for some people that feel really poorly, understanding that it's this, this lumping together of multiple stressors all at once, like it could be the mold in the coffee, it could be the fact that you're fasting, it could be that you didn't sleep well, it could be that you worked out really hard. And so I, I prefer to look at it just from the concept and the mechanism of like really thinking about each one of these things in and of themselves are a form of hormesis. And are you doing too much? And again, this is when a CGM can be helpful to me, it's very different, like having an intense amount of physical activity versus consuming something that potentially has the ability to secrete some insulin. I think that I, I find for most individuals when they're concerned about these things that I, I generally encourage them to lean into it. If you think you probably are breaking your fast because your body just is not well adapted to be doing those types of stressors, then you very likely are. But I, I don't think per se that coffee in and of itself in an otherwise well-adjusted, well-slept, 
not over exercising, not, not over fasting person, I don't think per se that's breaking the fast. And I'm hoping that I made that really clear. I think that many of us in the the health and wellness space have differing opinions on some of these things. And it's interesting. I was just on Gundry's podcast this past week, and we were talking about some of the nuances of, does this break my fast? Does this not break my fast? And so I think what it really comes down to is, are you metabolically healthy? Are you at your ideal body weight? And if you're not those two things, then you probably need to be more conscientious about what you're consuming and when you're consuming it. For most other people, they have a little bit of play with what they're consuming and when they're consuming it. Did that help? Yeah, no, that really did. And I think a lot of it is just semantics and a paradigm around, it's more like esoteric in a way. I guess the way I would phrase it is I wouldn't say that that's breaking the fast. I would say that it's not conducive to like an easy fast. Like it's not conducive to making fasting easy for you or giving you the benefits that you want. But I wouldn't consider it actually breaking the fast. So how was being on Gundry's podcast? You know, it's funny. So sometimes when you're on some of these bigger podcasts, they'll send questions ahead of time. And, you know, obviously Dr. Gundry has been doing this for a long time. Sometimes smaller podcasts will do that because they just want the validation that they're asking questions you're comfortable with. And and I always say, like, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with anything. There's nothing you're going to ask me that I'm going to feel unprepared for. Although it was interesting to see his kind of thought process. And he really has a very thoughtful way of interacting with his guests. And I re- it was really, really enjoyable. And I think because we both come from these cardiology backgrounds, he was a surgeon, you know, I, I worked in cardiology as an NP, and we have this mutual love for everything related to the heart. So it was a really incredible experience. He was very gracious, very nice, very smart, as you and I both know. And I love that we could talk about something that we both really fervently believe. And by this, I'm talking about mitochondrial health, metabolic flexibility, intermittent fasting. We could talk about it and talk about it in a way that was very thoughtful. It was interesting. He had posted on Instagram not all that long ago, something around the fear-mongering about fasting and women. And it's interesting to see there's some very polarizing opinions about this And it was just nice to have a conversation where it was very evidence and clinically based. Like, this is my clinical experience. This is based on my research. This is based on your research, the things that we've read, and did it in a way that made the information super accessible. So it was really, it was awesome. I always say when I have the opportunity to connect with interesting people, it's always a blessing. That's amazing. So you said he did send questions ahead of time? He did. He did. And and what's interesting is most people don't ask me about stem cells and telomeres. And so I was prepared to, to answer lots of questions. We didn't end up going down that path, but I appreciated that there were very thoughtful questions and, and not like the normal, how do we say this, garden variety questions that I think most people ask. It was, it, sometimes it's nice to kind of deviate from what's expected. That's very exciting. Do you send questions to your guests? I do not. I always say I keep it. I, I always have you know, several pages of notes. And I love that this is a Monday where I didn't have any of my own podcast to record because my kids are off from school. And so, you know, from my perspective, I like being prepared. I like the guests knowing that I'm prepared, but I always allow the conversation to be very organic. And if I think that someone has a lot that will resonate with listeners, I always say, this is the first of two, or we're definitely bringing this guest back because there's just so much to talk about. And I know, and your guests know, and your listeners know that you are super uber prepared. 
It's really interesting to think about. I was just thinking about like, why do I send the questions to the guests? Because I don't, honestly, I don't send it to them so that they will. I think I send it to them so they will know. I guess it, I think it's about me, honestly. I send it to them so they'll know I that I read their book. <laughs> you know, that I'm like taking the interview seriously. People really appreciate that. I, in fact, I... Trying to think about some of the more high profile people I've interviewed in the last couple of months. And and Gabor Mate in particular was very appreciative that I had read the book because it, a lot of those people, like he's got a New York Times bestseller. I mean, he's just this prolific clinician and he's really changing the narrative for how we view trauma and addiction. And I would imagine you get to a point where you've got the same questions being asked every single day. And at the end of the interview, he was, he actually thanked me and said, thank you for reading my book. It's evident that you read the book. And so I I know now that I'm an author, I really appreciate it when people read the book and Gundry read the book because he was talking about different things throughout the book. And so I think it allows both the author and the podcast host to feel like, you know, we're in this together. We really want to ensure that there's this mutual admiration and appreciation for your craft and showing you in the best light, which I know you do with your guests as well. It's it's really an amazing opportunity. As Melanie says, podcasting is the best form of networking. One of my favorite guests of all time is still David Sinclair. And I did interview him when I was still relatively new to that other show. And I remember when I sent him the prep doc the first time and he like actually answered via email and was like, wow, that's a deep dive. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like so happy. <laughs> But thank you for the introduction, by the way. I did book Dr. Matt Gabor Mate, so I'm so, so excited about interviewing him. It's funny. I've had a lot of people listen to that podcast, and if our listeners haven't listened to that podcast, it's the most personal podcast I've ever done. But you can't interview someone like that, not having invested in the work in yourself, because trauma, and I mean, it's just hard stuff to talk about because there's no one out there that hasn't experienced some type of trauma in their life. It's just how we we express it inwardly or outwardly. And, you know, for me, I mean, his book is amazing. It's one of my favorite books I read in the past several years, but is definitely a book like you have to be ready to like do the work, talk to yourself. The other person, not to get off like on a tangent, but do you know Dr. Nicole LaPera? I do not. She's a holistic psychologist. And I don't know, it's like down a rabbit hole. I I heard her on Lewis's podcast. I bought her book. I bought the workbook. I'm now in her like healing group. And it's just like, I tell everyone, like I talk about doing the work. I am always doing the work and how important it is to invest in yourself. So if you're listening and, and you may never be in a position where you have the opportunity to connect with some of these people, but their books can be life changing. It can be very reflective and you know, like Gabber's book probably took me two or three weeks to get through because it's it's very heavy. There's a lot in that book that you have to kind of absorb it. And okay, it's like, I've read that chapter. I can take a break. I go back to it, but it's an excellent resource. Well, I will have to check it out and we'll have to put links to it in the show notes. Absolutely. Friends, I am so excited to tell you about one of my new favoriteest things ever. Okay, so you guys know I eat a lot of cucumbers. I don't think that this is any secret. And I find myself throwing away pounds, yes, pounds of cucumber peels every single night. I felt so awful just throwing it in the trash. It seemed like such a waste. 
I'd always wanted to try composting, aka a sustainable approach to turning food waste into healthy dirt, but it seemed really intimidating and not very practical. So it was on the to-do list for quite a while. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when a company called Lomi by Pila reached out to me wanting to sponsor the show. Normally I have to think a little bit about all the brands that reach out to me. I was an immediate yes. I was so excited. I got my Lomi device. It is incredible. Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps to dirt in under four hours. By comparison, if you were to compost naturally, it would probably take at the shortest around six to eight weeks and maybe even up to a year. But nope, with Lomi, I can literally do it in four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it is super quiet. I've been using Lomi for a few months now. It is substantially reducing my waste. I was taking out garbage bags all the time. It's probably cut that down by about 30 to 50%. In fact, I love it so much that I bought another Lomi for my parents for Christmas. So now with my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. That means that waste is not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that you can actually use to feed your plants. And Lomi is super cool. It has three different settings. It has the Eco Express setting, which is low energy consumption, provides the fastest results, and is good for your food waste. It has the Lomi Approved setting, that's five to eight hours, and you can actually put in Lumi Approved bioplastics and other compostable commercial goods and packaging that are Lumi Approved. And then there's the Grow Mode, that's 24 hours. It's low heat with a longer duration, and that actually preserves the microorganisms the most to help the soil and promote carbon storage in the soil. I am all about regenerative agriculture. So the fact that we can help put carbon back into the soil is so, so incredible. Lomi is something I have instantly fallen in love with. And if you guys are anything like me, I know you will as well. Turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button with Lomi. Use the code IFPODCAST to save $50 at Lomi.com slash IFPODCAST. That's L-O-M-I.com slash IF podcast with the promo code IF podcast to save $50. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. Okay. So to start things off, we have a question from Lori. This is actually kind of funny because I guess Lori is listening to old episodes still. So she thought Jen was still on the show. And I don't think she realized that Cynthia is on the show, which is funny when you hear this question. So I'm going to read her question. So she says, hi, Jen. I've listened to more than a dozen episodes of intermittent fasting stories over the past week in preparation for joining the IF train. You and your interviewees have motivated and inspired me. I am 100% in. And for listeners who are not familiar, intermittent fasting stories is Jen's other podcast where she interviews people who do intermittent fasting. So if that is of interest to you, definitely check that show out. So she says, I have only 20 pounds to lose, and I'm very much looking forward to shedding unwanted pounds. As I'm 61 and after 50, like so many others, the weight just creeped up. It is the health benefits I'm looking forward to, more stamina and energy, brain clarity, better sleep, and natural cravings for more nutritious food. I was introduced to IF in an episode of the Megan Kelly Show podcast, where she interviewed Cynthia Thurlow. I tried my first experience with IF about 18 months ago and was successful. So Lori, Cynthia, 
Thurlow is now the host of this show. She says, after the first challenge of deciding I didn't need cream in my coffee, haha, I was a believer in the IF methodology and the science behind it. Of course, after listening to many of your episodes, which go much deeper than the one episode on Megan Kelly, I already know what I could have done better for better results and will be joining your groups for support. I do have a question slash concern though, and hopefully you can direct me to a specific episode of yours to help this concern of mine. So far, I haven't heard any topics of discussion on your podcast from people who consider themselves, quote, foodies who are able to square their love of entertaining, cooking, coffee dates, lunches, etc. because I have some concerns that this very thing that gives me so much joy in life, preparation of food, eating as part of my entertainment with people, and serving people my delicious creations might fall away like they've described as their cravings for flavored coffees and salty snacks. So she's saying like might fall away as their other cravings have fallen away. Is there a happy medium? Thank you for all you are doing for a huge population of women who have tried everything else. Best, Lori. I love this question. We actually haven't received the nuance of this specific question before. So I'm very curious. What are your thoughts on this, Cynthia? Well, Lori, thanks for your question. And I'm glad that you were introduced to fasting during my podcast with Megan Kelly, which we'll link up in the show notes as well. I think that any strategy that we are using to improve our quality of life needs to be something that's sustainable. And so when someone that is a foodie, and I define foodie in in different ways. So sometimes people that are foodies just like really good food, but it sounds like Lori enjoys the whole socialization piece, the the cooking, the prepping, the, you know, gathering together around food. And I don't think it's an all or nothing phenomenon. I do think that you can intermittent fast and also enjoy those things in your lifestyle. I think it has to be a reframe in terms of if you choose to go like to have a coffee date or go out to lunch with a girlfriend, maybe you break your fast earlier or later. Maybe if you have a big party on a Saturday night, maybe you fast longer on Sunday. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to work around that. The other thing is, you know, as a menopausal woman and, you know, wanting to lose about 20 pounds, it's not just fasting that's going to help get you there. There are other things, you know, we know that that women, especially in the second half of their lives, we have less muscle mass, within, with it, which also impacts insulin sensitivity. And so, in most of my menopausal patients and clients, I'm really encouraging them to strength train make sure they're sleep styled in. If HRT or hormone replacement therapy is appropriate for you, estrogen in particular is an insulin sensitizing hormone to really think about that in conjunction with intermittent fasting. But I don't think it's an all or nothing. I I think you can enjoy food and intermittent fast. In fact, I'm married to a foodie and I'm by by being married to him, I've kind of been like a quasi foodie for the last 20 years. And he navigates really beautifully. And I think it's always with the context and the lens of I moderate what I enjoy eating and I just adjust my fasting and feeding windows around my lifestyle. And if I go on vacation, maybe I'm having three meals a day and a wider feeding window. It is certainly a sustainable strategy, but it's not an all or nothing. And unfortunately, I think some people feel like you have to be gluten-free, dairy-free, all these things. It does not have to be that way. But what I do think needs to be entertained is that you're still doing activities that you enjoy because if intermittent fasting has left you with the impression that you can't do those things, 
then we need to find a reframe because you absolutely can enjoy entertaining and going out to dinner and having parties and lunch dates and coffee dates. And you can absolutely do that and integrate that into this lifestyle. Melanie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with what you said. And it's funny, I'm actually reading a book right now called The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life by Mike Rucker. I'm really enjoying it, but I just started it. I'm I'm, I'm only like like a sixth of the way through that he talks all about the importance of having fun. (laughs) But in any case, so I'm so intrigued by this question for a few different reasons. It's really interesting to me, and this is just something to like contemplate how, well, first of all, let me start by saying I agree with Cynthia that I actually think assuming this continues to be something that brings you joy in life, you can maintain it 100%. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But before that, it's interesting to think about how if we have a joy for something or something brings us pleasure, and then it's an activity that no longer does for whatever reason, if it's no longer bringing you joy, it's not like it hurts you or that you how do I say this? I'm not articulating this well. I find it interesting that we would have like a secondary emotion about something no longer giving us joy and presumably something else does give you joy. So it's not like you lost something really. So for example, people like with the coffee and the snacks, people get sad at the idea of thinking they will lose their cravings for these foods that they once loved. But the thing is, if you no longer crave it anymore, you no longer crave it anymore. So really what you're sad about is the loss of something that you once enjoyed. But the ironic thing is if it's literally not bringing you joy anymore, I just think it's funny to like step back and and be like, you know, why am I feeling this about this experience? Because also presumably if you no longer have a craving for something, you likely are enjoying something else food wise. So you could focus on what you are enjoying rather than what you no longer enjoy. And I think it's important that we are okay with change and realizing that what we find joy in right now can be anything. And that's where the joy comes from. So it doesn't really matter if it was something we used to have joy in or will have joy in in the future. I don't want to say it's not important that things that really meant something to us for a long time, if we no longer find joy in them, that that's, you know, just something we should brush off. It's an interesting thing to contemplate. Like I can contemplate this for a long time, especially with the food, because presumably when your cravings change, they really do shift to something else. And especially when people do fasting or adopt like a paleo diet or whole foods diet or cut out processed foods, they tend to really enjoy new foods that tend to be healthier for them. Maybe it's like a loss of identity, honestly because you identified with liking something before and now you no longer do. Like for me, for example, well, I still really love the idea of Funfetti cake. So, (laughs) but I'm actually not sad not eating it. But to get more specific to your question, Lori, because I feel like that was very esoteric, I actually don't see, and Cynthia covered this very well, it's really not that hard, I don't think, to maintain all of this. Also, coffee dates. Coffee dates, if you're drinking, you know, black coffee, you can still do those, you know, the way you've been doing them. I understand like lunches, depending on what your window is. So if you have a window, you can make your window something that includes lunches and dinner, or you could change your window around, or you could break it, open it early, like Cynthia was saying. Like you can make it work around meals. Most people with intermittent fasting, not everybody, but a lot, 
do have an eating window that covers the evening in some capacity. And that's when the majority of entertaining type stuff, especially like parties often happens. So then there's no issue there. You can still keep doing all of that. And it's really interesting too, even on the foodie side of things. So I eat so plain as people know, like I, you know, when I go to restaurants, I just get like completely plain steak or completely plain fish and plain vegetables. But what's funny is I, I think I'm not a foodie just because I don't fit the definition because I don't, I I don't engage in the way meals are prepared when they often have a lot of ingredients that I personally wouldn't consume. But from all appearances, I probably look like a foodie. Like I hardcore research the restaurants, not to see if they have something I can eat more because I'm curious about the experience and the actual meals and the food that they have. I get really into it. I get really into multi-courses. Like I'm all about it. And it's funny because I was with a friend and he was saying that we were picking out a restaurant to go to and he was saying, well, he commented on how I was such a foodie. And I was like, well, I'm really not because I literally eat the exact same thing at every restaurant I go to pretty much. But I am very much into the experience of it, which is what I think Lori is getting at here. So the point of all of that meandering long answer was you can definitely maintain it. Although in the end, it seems like your concern isn't even if you could. Your concern is that you're going to lose that desire. And I don't see any reason that you would lose that desire if that's something that is bringing you joy. People lose the desire often with the cravings with intermittent fasting because it's literally changing how their body interprets food and processes food because they're no longer eating. It's putting people more in touch with what their body needs and they're cravings tend to naturally change to something less processed. But the joy of entertaining and cooking and being with others and all of that, I don't see how fasting would change that. If anything, I think it might enhance it. Actually, I really do think it might enhance it because it's enhanced it for me because the meal experience is more concentrated to like this sacred time window where I really experience it more because I'm not eating 24-7. Have you found that, Cynthia, that you enjoy meals more now? I mean, I I think, well, I I mean, I'm at a different stage of life. So I would say the past nearly three years when we had a whole year when the boys were home and not in school and we had four different people eating at four different times because of work schedules, book writing schedules, school schedules. So I definitely really savor my mealtime, especially when I'm not eating by myself, you know, when I'm with my family and that's very sacred time on the weekend when we're all together, all eating at the same time. So I think it just makes you more appreciative of the process of eating. It's not this mechanical, it's breakfast time, so I eat breakfast, it's lunchtime, so I eat. I'm I'm much more attuned to what my body needs at that given point in time, as opposed to you know, when I was probably eating three meals a day and snacks and mini meals, because that's what I was telling my patients. It just felt like I was constantly eating, whereas now it's a much more thoughtful way to honor my body. I think the take-home message, Lori, based on all of that is that, yes, your experience with eating and food might change, but I think if your underlying joy for these activities is still there and being a foodie, I don't think that's going to change. And you can definitely pair it with intermittent fasting. So any other thoughts for that one? No, I I think that, you know, I appreciate that she's putting so much thought behind it, but it's really that reframe of not what you can't have, but what you can have. And then, you know, adopting, if you're having a a party at your home, I mean, maybe you're 
going to have a wider feeding window. Maybe you're going to have a shorter feeding window the following day. I think there are a lot of different ways to navigate fasting and having a lifestyle that embraces a lot of entertaining. Yep, definitely. So now we actually have, we still have some great questions from the, the AMAs that we asked for. So we actually got two questions related to hormones, bioidentical hormones. So I'm going to read those. So Tracy said, have you done an episode on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? And if not, would you address it? And Stephanie said, I'm on progesterone only HRT. Can you use estrogen? Even if you still have a period, will it cause weight gain? And I will just say, this is Cynthia's forte. <laughs> Let me be sure. I definitely told Melanie we needed to definitely answer these questions. So Tracy, no, we have not done a dedicated bioidentical hormone episode, but I think we should definitely do one. And maybe we'll bring in one of my favorite colleagues to you know bolster that, a GYN friend, so that they can provide additional input. And then Stephanie said... I'm on progesterone only. And and let me be clear, a lot of women in perimenopause, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, and yes, if the average age is 51, late 30s, you're there. One of the first hormonal shifts that starts to happen is that our ovaries stop producing as much progesterone. So it's not at all uncommon to take just progesterone and still be in perimenopause. I do see several women who are also on estrogen, although interestingly enough, and I learned this while writing my book, that in perimenopause, women can have wild fluctuations in estrogen. And it's because of these fluctuations in progesterone, we're making less progesterone, our ovaries, we're starting this early ovarian failure, our adrenal glands are trying to pick up the slack with progesterone. But we get this relative estrogen dominance internally, but we can also have higher levels of estrogen because of exogenous exposure. So it can be multiple things. But Dr. Lara Brynan does a particularly great explanation of this in the Hormone Repair Manual. And we'll link up the podcast I did with her. But you see these wild fluctuations in estradiol throughout perimenopause before, right before menopause when those estrogen levels are starting to falter. And it's interesting because I've seen several women who've been on estradiol patches or they've been on different types of testosterone therapy or other types of therapies in perimenopause. But typically, if you have a uterus and you are in menopause, you should be on both, both estrogen and progesterone to protect the lining of the uterus. I know this question will probably come up, so I'm just going to address it. But testosterone therapy, interestingly enough, there's no FDA-approved testosterone option for women. You will see women using pellets. I'm not a fan of pellets. They are wildly unpredictable I've seen a lot of women that have had a lot of problems because they've been on pellets. Of course, there's always an exception. Every time we do a post about pellets, we get 10 people who tell us they have a great experience. They're the minority. I also did a podcast with Dr. Sean Tessone talking specifically about pellets, which we'll also link up. But to reassure women that you can actually have testosterone replacement in perimenopause and menopause, but you want to fix the upstream issue. Interestingly enough, stress is has a large impact on our libido and also our testosterone levels, as well as insulin resistance. You want to make sure both of those are addressed before you consider testosterone cream. Some people even prescribe subcutaneous testosterone administration, but you absolutely positively want to work with a practitioner who's familiar with all of your options. And there's not just one size fits all. Someone who does the testing, so not just blood testing, but also the Dutch, which I use in, in my practice and I'm a huge proponent of 
because it gives you information like how well your body breaks down and detoxifies estrogen. And so, yes, you can just be on progesterone. More often than not, you're probably in perimenopause, which it sounds like Stephanie is. And then estrogen sometimes is added as people are getting closer to menopause. You don't have to just be in menopause to be getting bioidentical hormones. And we could have a whole episode just on that, but I'll just leave it at that. We'll give you guys some resources and I will work with Melanie to find an appropriate person to bring on that is a GYN that will be able to answer all the things about HRT and bioidentical HRT. I really have nothing to add. And that's totally okay. Okay. Historically, for so long, people ask me questions all the time and I'm like, I don't know. Like that's not my, that's not my area of expertise. So, and that's totally okay. And I'm happy if during if we have a podcast episode like that, I'm happy to tell everyone what I've done, what I haven't done, what's worked, what has not worked, what I would recommend, what I would not recommend. I think most women have to go through several practitioners to get the care they want in middle age. I don't think it's a one size fits all, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm just happy that there are so many changes happening. I think progressively in the the medical system with all of this, because especially with the role of women in the medical system and how there's not really been that much attention to them in studies and things like that. So I will not go on that soapbox tangent, but well, and it's and it's interesting. There's a really good book if you're interested in learning more about the Women's Health Initiative and and what has come out of that. We have a whole generation of clinicians and patients who are fearful to prescribe and take hormones, but there's a really excellent resource called Why Estrogen Matters by Drs. Avram Blumming and Carol Tabris. He is a oncologist. She is a researcher. They're an amazing, amazing duo. And I had them on the podcast last year and we really unpacked the Women's Health Initiative. So that's a really good starting point. Why Estrogen Matters is a really great book to kind of get you up to speed. And if you want to spend three hours listening to a podcast, you can listen to Peter Atia's podcast with them. That's how I got acquainted with their work. And uh, my podcast with them, I think, is under an hour and 15 minutes. So if you want a shorter one, (laughs) there's definitely my podcast with them. But that's a really great resource. Well, you had me at Peter Atia, so <laughs> sign me up. Okay, so we have a really fun question next. So our next question is from Stacy. Subject is AMA question, does THC inhibit weight loss while intermittent fasting? And before Melanie answers, Melanie and I have been talking about the research around THC, and it's really been very interesting. So Melanie, what are your thoughts? So, so it's really interesting because there's a lot of studies on both CBD and THC. And I think when people think THC, they associate it with CBD, especially with all of the CBD oils on the market, because there are not THC oils on the market. And that's because THC, so when you're engaging in something like cannabis or hemp and like CBD oil from that, if there's any THC in it as well. The THC is actually the part of cannabis that has the the psychoactive properties to it. So when people get CBD oils, they usually won't have THC or they'll have like very, very minimal amounts. So I know her question was specifically about THC, but for all intents and purposes, I researched both THC and CBD. And it's really interesting because the studies are all over the board. So like for CBD specifically, some studies have found no effects. Some have found that CBD CBD can actually decrease body weight. Others have found that CBD can actually increase body weight. 
And what's really interesting is one of the studies that I was looking at was proposing that that maybe CBD was increasing body weight, but THC was counter to that. And then another study I found was basically saying the opposite, that THC might be responsible for the weight gain. So basically, it's really hard to say something either way. And also, it might have to do with the patient population. So sometimes they'll do studies in patients with weight loss issues or anorexia or something like that, and they will see how it affects weight gain or weight loss. And then that's important information to know, but it might not necessarily apply to the general public. So it's really hard to say something either way. I know her question is actually about THC in relation to fasting. What I would say to that is that if it's having that effect either way, I don't know that the effect would be that strong that you like wouldn't lose weight while fasting, but I think it's going to be very, very individual. What did you find in your research, Cynthia? Yeah, I think you did a really nice job explaining that. It's interesting because the studies I was looking at were comparing short versus long-term use. So in individuals that have cancer and we call it cachexia, but they're very, very thin and very frail, individuals with HIV and AIDS that it can be helpful for appetite stimulation in low-weight individuals. And so what I found from my research was that individuals that are at a a healthier, quote-unquote, normal weight, you know, that's dependent on many, many variables, that they are less likely to gain weight while utilizing cannabis. And so, you know, from my perspective, I didn't say anything that was specific to inhibition of weight loss while fasting, but... More often than not, it's in my clinical experience, so again, this is different, that people who are still smoking a lot of marijuana or using CBD-type products are just more prone to snacking and, and eating you know, outside of a feeding window. So I think it's highly individual, and based on the research that I looked at, you know, the utilization of, of these types of substances can be beneficial for people who are underweight if they want to gain weight but is really limited to the population I looked at in in the research was cancer patients, chronically ill people that are underweight, and those that have HIV and AIDS where they get these kind of starvation cachexia syndromes where their, their bodies are chronically malnourished, they're having trouble utilizing the food that they do consume, and then they're on medications that are probably impacting their desire to eat. Yeah, and to that point, that reminded me of one of the things I had read which was pointing out the paradox that users of CBD, I think specifically marijuana, I'd have to find it again, but it was talking about how that's associated with like increased appetite and eating more and all of that, but that the users don't tend to weigh more. So it's a bit of a paradox. And I think it speaks to that, that long-term piece of overall habits. But I think that was the one where it said that maybe THC was responsible for mitigating that, but it's really hard to know. So like from, this is a 2021 study. So relatively recent, the title is cannabinoid use for appetite stimulation and weight gain. Oh, and cancer care. I wonder if this was maybe related to what you had read, Cynthia, but like a, a quote from this, this is really interesting. They said over the past 20 years, six randomized controlled trials have evaluated the impact of cannabinoids on appetite-related outcomes in oncology patients in comparison with the control group or placebo. And based on that literature, cannabinoids do not appear to improve appetite, oral intake, weight, 
chemosensory function or appetite-related quality of life. But limitations are small sample sizes, lack of adjustment for confounding variables, difficulties in conducting the trials. So yeah, there's just, we need more research for sure. And it seems to be all over the place. Well, and it's it's interesting. 20 plus years ago, there was a drug called Marinol. It's probably still in existence, but it was THC, but it was a, you know, when I use the term street legal, like people could prescribe it legally. This is way before the advent of all this legalization of marijuana and their byproducts. And, you know, it was something that, I mean, they are really pushing clinicians to use for the same patients I was talking about, the people who've got these wasting syndromes, cancer patients, HIV, AIDS, et cetera, as being beneficial. But I agree with you. And, and hopefully with the legalization in many parts of the United States that there'll be more research that will be able to determine the net impact on many different variables. I agree. And I do want to backtrack a little bit. I'm just thinking more about something I said earlier, because I was saying that I thought that even if it was having an effect that you could still lose the weight with the fasting. But I do want to emphasize if it's having a hormonal effect on you, I don't think we can overstate the role that hormonal changes can have as being a barrier to weight loss or weight gain. So that could go either way. So for people who are having this in their life, they're just going to have to like look at themselves and see how it's affecting them. But I think it it definitely could play a factor either way. I feel like this answer is not that helpful. Basically, you have to just (laughs) figure it out for yourself if it's affecting you that way. I take AG1 several times a week after working out and when I'm ready to break my fast. And it really makes me feel unstoppable. I love to add it to a protein smoothie or actually will drink it with filtered water. And I love both variations. My 17 year old also enjoys AG1 after a workout to ensure he stays really well hydrated. A great deal of what I focus on in my personal life is ongoing gut health improvement. And I do feel fundamentally that AG1 has contributed significantly to improvements in my gut health over the last three years. I feel as if the key health benefits from multivitamins, minerals, pre and postbiotics all work together synergistically to improve my gut microbiome. And AG1 is way more than just greens. It's important to note that it's made with 75 super high quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients that deliver incredible benefits to the gut microbiome, as well as sleep support, assistance with energy, and so much more. So if you want to take full ownership of your health, today is a good time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I find that these five free travel packs are so convenient when you're traveling. In fact, I was in Los Angeles last week and I used one each day that I was away. Go to athleticgreens.com slash ifpodcast. That's athleticgreens.com slash ifpodcast and check it out. So now we'll answer another one of our AMA questions. This is a personal one. It's I'm really excited to answer this one. Nicole wants to know, a few people asked this, which is interesting. So Katie said, the two of you are so positive. What would be interesting is to hear some of your biggest pet peeves. And then Nicole said, what are your pet peeves? And then Teresa said, what is your biggest turnoff? So pet peeves and turnoffs. Yeah, I would say my personal pet peeve that drives me absolutely crazy are wet socks. And in my house, we don't wear shoes. And 
you know, every morning when my kids go off to school, I like open up all their plantation shutters and I kind of go through rooms and like gather laundry and things like that. And my kids are absolute water like hogs. There's water everywhere. It's on the floor. It's never on the bath mat. And so if I have socks on and I walk into their bathroom and my socks get wet, there's something about wet socks that makes me crazy. And so I have to then change my socks. I would say like, just from a personal perspective, that's my own quirky thing. But I would say things that bother me a lot. Like if, you know, you travel, I travel. People that chew their gum really loudly and pop it in public and individuals who talk on their cell phones as if no one is around in an enclosed space. Like I'm not talking about like if you're outside, I'm talking about you're in an enclosed environment and you are pretending as if no one is around you and you're speaking at full volume and yelling and it's not a brief conversation, it's an extensive one. So those are probably my my three that bother me the most. And I generally, with the exception of the socks, I just have to kind of like pray that someone walks away from me. It's like, please go somewhere else and chew your gum and talk loudly into your cell phone. How about you? That's so funny. I'm having flashbacks to, remember when people first started wearing Bluetooth headsets, like ear pods, and they weren't a thing yet. So like people would be like talking to themselves out loud. And I, I just remember when that first started happening and I was like, what are they doing? And then <laughs> I realized it was the, the ear pods. Yes. So I have quite a few. Okay. When people, this one kills me. When, when you send a text to somebody that has like multiple questions and then they only answer like the last question, like they don't, they don't address the entire text drives me up the wall. Did you not read the whole text? Like there are multiple questions in there. And then people who can't really plan, although it can work if I can plan for us, but I I, I need plans. People who like really wear being busy, like a badge of honor, like that's their like thing in life. That really bothers me. That probably bothers me too much because it bothers me to the point where I like don't like to tell people I'm busy as the reason because I have this own like concern around it. So like last night I was having a phone call or I was texting a friend and she was trying to schedule a, a time to catch up and I was so busy. I didn't want to tell her I was busy because I didn't want her to think I was just like saying I was busy to like wear busy like a badge of honor. But then finally I had to tell her, I was like, listen, it's just because I'm busy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so that one gets to me. Oh, this one. Because growing up, my mom, she has a lot of autoimmune conditions and she would always say that it's it's in her genes. Like my grandmother had it, you know, it's just the way it is. So I think when people, and I, I don't like to ascribe pet peeve to it because I don't want to, when people say this, I really feel for them. And I understand that they do feel like it's in their genes, certain health conditions, and that you know, that's our destiny. And that makes me really sad. And I want to empower people to be, you know, to feel differently. I think when people blame genetics, I guess the pet peeve of it would come in when people are living a lifestyle that is not conducive to a healthy state. And then they just blame their health conditions on genetics. That bothers me. Typos, typos really, really get to me. No, Melanie has a fastidious editing like I. So when I do my next book, Melanie, I'm going to have you like help me make sure there's nothing that's that should be edited. 
I feel so bad. Like if I'm ever hiring, which by the way, I really want to get an intern. If anybody, I'm probably going to post a, I need to post on one of those like job hiring sites. I've got to get an intern. Just so you know, though, (laughs) if you apply, if if anybody applies for an internship with me and there's a typo in your application, nope. (laughs) Like you're like, just because like, if that's your first impression, I don't see like any excuse to have a typo. If it's something that you're really putting time into, I like after you get the job, that's different. But if it's like your first impression or if somebody's like hitting on me and like sends a text with a typo, I'm like, nope, nope. (laughs) And then just in general, probably my biggest pet peeve of all pet peeves is people getting offended by things. I really just don't think there's any reason. I mean, yes, people get offended, but let me clarify, getting offended and blaming other people for feeling offended. My biggest thing is that if you're offended, there's something in you that's offended. Like, don't blame other people. I don't even care if it's something that is like straight up wrong that somebody else did. If you're like that feeling of being offended is something, I think it's, this is just my opinion, but I think it's a fear or an anxiety or something that you're uncomfortable with in you. And if anything, those actions that people do are just providing a mirror or a spotlight to, to figure out what bothers you and your psyche. So I, I just can't handle like today's culture of blaming everybody for everything. Just personal responsibility. <laughs> That's what I'm all about. So yeah, the only reason I didn't want to answer this question And I don't know if this is true, but you know how you read these things about psychology and they stick with you? I read at one point that when you talk negatively, this actually is good to know. When you talk negatively about somebody else, people ascribe that whatever you're saying and those negative characteristics subconsciously to you. So like ever since I read that, I was like, oh, I should not talk negatively about people because people might subconsciously describe that to me, which is a selfish reason to not want to to do that. But it's nice because it kind of curtails talking negatively about people as well. So hopefully people did not ascribe those attributes to us. No, but it, but I think it's it's just a lot of what bothers me in general beyond the wet socks, which obviously is my own, my own weird, and I've been that way my whole life, has a lot to do with just being courteous of one another, like as a society, just being thoughtful the concept of treat others as you would like to be treated. And I think in many ways, we're so disconnected from one another that we don't even perceive the behavior that we're embracing wherever we are. It could potentially, I mean, I'm just, I try to be a very thoughtful person. So the things that are are my pet peeves are are definitely things where I'm just like, that's that person's not being thoughtful (laughs) of people around them. They're just off in their own little, we used to call it our own private Idaho, that movie from many years ago when I was back in Maryland, we, there were a couple people that would just say they're off in their own private Idaho. I was like, yes, they are not even aware, but I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we choose to be positive, right? Yes. Quick plug. Everybody now go by, if any of this interests you, go by The Science of Positivity by Loretta Bruning. It is fascinating. It's a lot about cynicism and how we naturally engage in cynicism to like protect ourselves or it's a really, really, really good book and how you can actually be more positive. So 
Okie dokie. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. So if listeners would like to submit their own questions for the podcast, they can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or they can go to ifpodcast.com and they can submit questions there. These show notes for today's show where we will put links to everything that we talked about. And I know we talked about quite a few studies, so we will put those in the show notes. Those will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 305. And then you can get all the stuff that we like at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. And I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, I look forward to our next episode. We can dive into the rest of these listeners' questions along with our regular questions. Awesome. Well, this has been absolutely amazing and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.